Hello everyone, welcome to the Thought Leader's Voice. I'm Rachel Kinsella, your host today, editor at iResearch Services. We're thrilled to be joined today by renowned innovator, author and speaker on business strategy, Paul Nunes, Global Managing Director of Thought Leadership for Accenture Research. Through more than 35 years at Accenture, Paul has researched technology-led changes in business and marketing strategy. His findings and writing on marketing and business strategy are regularly featured in publications worldwide, and he writes a regular column on disruptive innovation for Forbes with author Larry Downs. Paul is co-author of three award-winning international best-selling books. We'll be talking a little bit more about those later, and frequently speaks at industry and management conferences around the globe and at top business schools, including Harvard, Columbia, Wharton, and Dartmouth. Paul was a front runner in pivoting strategies He's been speaking about this for a long time, even before it became fashionable. Having been awarded a US patent in 2010 for his systematic method of improving organizational innovation processes. He earned his Master of Science in Management from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. A very warm welcome to you today, Paul. Thank you for being here to share your insights on business innovation and future strategies today. We're really looking forward to a lively and inspiring conversation. Thanks, Rachel. Very glad to be here. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. Well, we've got a lot to cover today. So if I may, I'll dive straight into our first question. Please. The amalgamation of an increasingly complex business landscape, the proliferation of data and the pressing desire to be at the forefront of competition have led organizations to focus on using analytics to make strategic business decisions. How important do you feel it is for businesses to embed data analytics and AI into their core strategy, rather than focusing on the past for insights, in order to stay at the forefront of digital disruption? Well, it's a great question, Rachel, because it ties into some of the research we've been doing very recently, which has helped us to see the imperative for business now of something we call learning from the future. And that's kind of counterintuitive, but what we're seeing is that organizations have gotten pretty good at using at least some approaches to AI to create lessons from the past. By that, I mean seeing, looking at behaviors and then interpreting that and creating sort of predictive analytics on what somebody might do based on what they've done in the past. But what we're seeing now is this, uh, with the proliferation of data available to algorithms and the new algorithms being developed, that we can actually start to look further into the future and start to make more predictive and better predictive guesses about what might happen and how to respond to that. So a couple of examples, some of the ways it's being used, you think of car traffic software for getting from one place to another, your typical sort of navigation software. Before it would use past patterns, but today it actually starts to look at possibilities and do actually scenario planning of what might happen going forward should an accident occur, should somebody say something here and there. So it's starting to get much more forward looking as opposed to assuming that simply because in the past a pattern happened, it might still be true today and tomorrow. So this idea of being predictive is, is really important going forward. Great. And how, how is that application being used across different types of business? Well, it goes to create what we call customer experience and the importance of creating a great customer experience. A lot of times we use customers' own behavior or large 
data sets of the behavior that we see to predict what customers want. But what we're seeing now is that it's a really complex problem. The weather might affect whether or not you want a cold drink or a hot drink. So even the temperature we might get off of a watch, a smartwatch, right, could mm-hmm. tell us maybe how you're feeling about what kind of drinks you want, more than the fact that you wanted a certain type of drink when you were at that place the last time. So now things like the weather temperature can matter, your own body temperature, whether you're hot from running or not, mm-hmm. determine the kind of drink you want. Do you want water? Do you want something like Gatorade or a sport drink? Or do you want a refreshing soft drink? So we're starting to see that. And in fact, what we're seeing is 77% of companies that we surveyed are starting to embed more internal and external data into the way that they're assessing their their offerings and decision-making. So it's really becoming the next step. It's really interesting. And I think having that knowledge of your your customer through behavioral data just becomes so valuable in, as you say, predicting future strategies, as well as looking at what's happening now. It becomes table stakes. You have Mm. to have a large set of data to begin to understand and create the early predictions. And then that has to be modified and accelerated to be able to look forward and to do it in real time. So it's a challenge. And I think that's been particularly well used in the financial services sector, looking at behavioral analytics, looking at those more predictive sources of of data to look at elements such as creditworthiness or to predict particular risks. How do you find that uh, this kind of data and these kind of analytics can be better positioned towards quantifying and and measuring and, and predicting future risk? Well, risk is always an interesting thing because we have already have certain ways of predicting and knowing that, but oftentimes there's the specificity again of particular contexts that can change. So we need to be able to look more forward here again. So Mm -hmm. for example, if you think of whether somebody's likely to pay or pay their bills or a loan, paying back on a loan. Well, if an unexpected medical emergency comes up, the risk profile may change immediately. And so you could predict whether or not the likelihood that they would get sick. But once it actually happens, all of the future payments now become more questionable and need another level of analysis. So would they be better able to pay if you were able to restructure the debt? Would they, all sorts of things that you could do to adjust the nature of the contract or the risk going forward. So that's what we're starting to see is that as opposed to simply saying, well, you have this income or, or getting smart about you're a dentist. In the old days, you used to say some credit cards and some of the early credit cards into risk assessment. We say, well, dentists tend to need a lot of money when they get out of dental school, but they're great because they tend to pay it back. So we started to get these insights, but we got them at a pretty, a pretty broad level. Now what we were able to do is we're starting to get much more granular. And we're starting to be able to use more real-time data, which is, all right, if I give you some forbearance on this risk, on this debt, do I see that you start to pay back better? And and we can actually start to adjust these things in real-time. And that's an important next step, really, is this idea of experimentation and testing. And it's the next big step in AI, which is the first step in learning through AI is really, what can I infer? So inference engines, right? 
work off a large data sets and what can I infer from that? But the next step is really, well, how can I as a system get the next level of data I need so that I can make even better decisions, but because I'm actually going off and creating and gaining that data. So how do I actually experiment and then use that experimental result in my predictions and behavior? And that's a very exciting next step and next generation in AI and consumer behavior prediction AI. And it's going to help us manage risk tremendously because the best thing we want to do with managing risk is to improve the experience, right? We don't want to to have to deal with losses. What we want to do is minimize losses and make it the best possible situation for the customer as well. Sure. And also from a regulatory compliance perspective, in terms of looking at moving away from those traditional risk models, for example, or looking at different data, cutting it up in different ways, looking at it in real time, as, as you mentioned, surely that will make things easier in terms of regulatory compliance as regulation evolves. Yeah, well, regulation is a really interesting question because regulation always sort of comes down for a number of different reasons to adjust and correct for markets, supposedly. And really the good news of regulation when it works well is it protects consumers and it creates a a safe and fair environment. And I think if we assume good faith, everybody wants that. But what AI and some of the power of new technologies is allowing us to do is even to get beyond that, right? So regulation might say, well, you can't foreclose on somebody. But once you get to that point, everybody's losing. The power of the new technologies is that, all right, if we can find new ways to, um, to avoid having to throw it into regulatory decision-making, that's probably better for everybody involved. So can we restructure it that? Can we rethink contracts and find new approaches and new solutions you know, mm-hmm. in real time on the fly and doing it at the personal level? Part of the challenges yes. you can think about is, you know, regulation has always been a rather broad brush and a rather blunt tool. We don't have regulations for individuals because of the complexity, right, and the thing. But what we really actually want is we want solutions for individuals. Absolutely. And putting it at the customer level and at that personal level, as you say, just takes it beyond um, regulatory requirements. And actually, it brings it all back to the customer and uh, making sure that we're on top of, of their needs now and in the future. Exactly. I think these different methods, uh, it's really exciting to hear you talking about what's being achieved and uh, and the research that you, you've been doing. Obviously, it has um, implications for the workforce as, as well, um, in terms of obviously, we're, we're already very aware of the need for adaptability and speed uh, and agility. Um, and that's become even more to the fore even through uh through the past two years with the with the pandemic but it's not going to end there um we're going to have to keep evolving and, and keep in innovating but keeping up that 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 pace of change um how do you feel that that's impacting decision making authority across mm-hmm. di- different areas of the the business yeah well it's very clear that a number of factors have happened in the past even couple of years with the whole covid that decision-making needs to be brought closer to the need and um, accelerated so that it happens faster 
more in real time. Mm -hmm. uh, so a couple of points that, you know, one is we can see with the pandemic and its diverse impacts across businesses or global businesses, but even regionally and some of the stuff that we talked about in COVID, all the different regional regulations create this need for localized decision making. You know, are you going to open the restaurants? Well, that's not a decision for uh, an executive at the top of a 3000 national chain restaurant can't make, right? How are you going to treat employees? So we can and need as executives today to understand what has to be held fast from a corporate level, whether that's for branding purposes or risk purposes, regulatory purposes, but also what must be made loose to bring it to the local level so that we actually serve our customers locally and our employees, our talent, um, and our business in general, um, you know, and, and our brand at the local level. So we're seeing a real fascination. And now 82%, I believe it is, of our folks that we surveyed um, in, in a recent study um, said that they're actually operating more like a federation, a broad federation, than they are like a centralized company uh, in the past 24 months, largely due to COVID, of course. Um, but actually, from our additional research, we're starting to see that that's likely to remain. Uh, in much the same way that flattened organizations, which are sort of a trend, well, anywhere from 15 to 20 years ago, as we researched the history of business, right? Sometime about 20 years to 10 years ago, we started to really embrace this idea of flattened organizations. And really, it was communications technology that allowed us to do that. Today, technology is going to allow us to, from the, from the core, from the center, evaluate and understand the decisions and see the decisions that are being made locally and understand when to intervene. And that's going to allow us the power to distribute and to make it more normal to distribute lots of decision making to what we call the edge of the business. Because in the past, it might be months, years, or you may never, you might never have known what decision was made on a car loan or a car sale or sale price, you know, at the edge. Today, the nice thing is you can decentralize that decision-making, but you can create centralized visibility, mm -hmm. such as start to recognize patterns and start to make better centralized decisions about broad patterns of decision-making around the organization. And that's an exciting new capability. For me, it's really exciting as a business researcher for years Absolutely. Um, to think of that as a new level of how we organize and manage businesses today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how does that feed into getting the right skill sets uh, across different teams, making sure that there's the, the right data and predictive capabilities in, in terms of what skills are going to be needed by the different levels of the organization? Yeah, it's a tremendous question because there, it happens on multiple fronts. So mm -hmm. at the simplest level, we simply need a lot more data scientists. And in fact, Accenture itself has been off working with universities and a number of different programs trying to accelerate, you know, the student training in, in analytic capabilities and particularly even the scientific analytic capabilities, you know, how do you code and manage this kind of software, they have statistical knowledge. So, you know, statistics, which has always a bit of a challenge, a little bit of a challenge for me in school, 
We need lots, lots of them. We're going to need hundreds of thousands more of those folks. But then it also is a function of bringing decision-making and teaching good decision-making skills and empowering employees at every level of the organization. And that's not really something that um, we want to do. In the old days, hierarchy, you know, the textbook definition of hierarchy in an organization was created so that decision-making could be made by better trained, more experienced folks at a higher level. So Mm -hmm. it was always the idea that, well, we try and put less experienced, more affordable people at the front line, and then we'll use fewer, you know, more experienced people in the hierarchy to make the big decisions. Well, all of that's getting turned on its head now. Yes. Now we're recognizing that we want employees at every level to be thinking, engaged, capable, data gathering, setting up the questions and the problems and recognizing, well, I can answer this, I can make this decision, or maybe I need a little help. And maybe the help I need isn't from the hierarchy, maybe it's from something lateral in the organization, mm-hmm. which knows better. So maybe it's another from another country in the same region, rather than going to the multinational core in a different continent. So that's what we're seeing. It's really, it's really interesting. And so we need talent uh, of all else. And because of that ability to make the very nature of the jobs, you know, how we do the processes, the processes themselves need to be redesigned for a process that involves local decision-making. So if, if sales are done at the salesperson, not the manager or the senior manager level, that's a different process. And the computer, you know, the, the technology enablement of that process changes as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do you think that's that a problem solved by a better visibility of, of the right data across the organization and different individuals having access to the right kinds of data? Yeah, well, that, that highlights, Rachel, it's a great question because that highlights the whole thing of technology augmentation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we talk a lot about automation, but Accenture in a recent book with our chief technology officer and a good friend of mine, a chief researcher and colleague, Jim Wilson, we talked about human plus machine. And what we recognize is that it's not about automation itself. Automation is going to happen. It's always happened you know, continues. But where the exciting thing for businesses today is at the intersection of humans and machines. So how do you augment human behavior and human uh, capability. Um, and, you know, in some ways, the easiest way to think of that is exoskeletons, right? The, the things that fancy term for like putting a big, you know, machine on your back and you see the sci-fi movies banging around, you know, yeah. and lift up a car, you know, humans that can lift up a car. And there is a lot of importance to that, you know, in terms of some futuristic designs. But it also goes to the simplest things of, you know, the handhelds that you see increasingly with store employees, right? It's like, how do I bring the technology right to the transaction, but not remove the human experience, the human touch, the human understanding, empathy, decision-making capability from the equation. So we see lots of really interesting things in what we call the missing middle, um, where we're bringing technology together with humans create augmented processes that really create the best customer experiences well you know they grow the business absolutely 
Yeah, I think it's really key that the processes reflect the nature of the workforce and how that's evolving. And as you say, it's a big task. So there's multiple ways it needs to be addressed. So it's really interesting to see how organisations are moving forward in those structural changes, in the strategic change, um, with the tech enablement. And it's quite exciting, actually, to see that much movement uh, even in in recent years, so it's yeah. definitely- some of the research that we've done, you know, particularly because of the financial services industry, for example, mm-hmm. right? There's the whole advisory side of the business, cool. and there's been a lot yeah. of question for years about is that all going to go away? You know, arguments were that it was all going to become electronic trading, and it was going to become electronic advisory, or we were going to just put create one big algorithm where you put in, you know, your finances and um, advisory was going to be pressing a button with the computer output. Hasn't happened. Why? I mean, people, uh, they don't want a pure computer answer entirely because, you know, this is important stuff. This is their money. This is trust. This is, um, you know, and particularly understanding. I mean, one of the challenges that we talk a lot about is the challenge of whether or not you can trust the algorithm, the computer, understanding the uh, and having transparency and visibility into how the computer made the decision. Yeah. So, you know, allowing a computer to decide all of your investments, it's like, well, people are going to want some visibility into, you know, why is that? Well, the computer says, yeah. you know, this <laughs> profile. Um, and, and so humans that can work with computers there, and I think in particular in financial services, like I say, in advisory, it's like, well, you want to use the computer because there's just too many possible offerings, right? There's mm. thousands of stocks you could be in. There's industries, there's sector analysis, right? So the data is profound, and yet the decision making at the end comes down to a real personal interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, that almost certainly has to be uh, intermediated by a real person who gets the technology, but also gets the people, the customers that they're serving. Yes. Yeah. So there's that dual need of skill set and uh, and capabilities and that you've got to understand the technology and what it's doing and why it's doing it. But also you need to understand the customer needs. You need to understand the products and what you're offering. So that's, that's quite a change in skill set, particularly for um, sectors like the financial services, where um, you know, it's been very traditional models up until very recently. You know, I think there's been some real embracing of technology across financial services and, and in competing with fintechs and other tech organisations. But then there's also been some reticence to to adopt new models and to uh, and to rely on technology, as you said. There's perhaps underlying mistrust which needs to be ironed out with transparency as you say so you can you can see why why it's working how it's working and that it is effective um so that you can trust it to to make decisions yeah. um, well you can see rachel why it's threatening right it threatens yeah. your job the robot could simply replace the kind of advice that you were creating and it's also threatening in the sense that they have to be um able to reskill and upskill um themselves into a new world so there's a very real threat there how do you think we can combat that 
outlook that uh, that, that approach yes it it is a threat but obviously looking at it from the positive side in terms of the uh, you know how the technology is mm-hmm. it's helping the very manual processes or uh, the you know decisions that are far more easily done through technology through the computer how do you think we can is it a case of education uh, is it having the the right people in place to be able to talk to the technology well it's very definitely it's a combination of um, leadership and like you say training and upskilling i think it's a function also of leading with the opportunity um, more than the risk right i mean when they see sales increase when they see the number of customers that can be managed by a single agent, um, which therefore means a lot more, you know, potential income um, for the individual. I think they start to see the upside. Now, it it has to be done through a directed sort of reskilling. You know, individuals can't be expected to kind of take the risk and the chance entirely by themselves. Some will, um, but large, broadly. It's a, a function of reskilling, but also a redesigning of the processes in ways that um, are evolutionary more than revolutionary in some ways. What we see happening this is uh, it's, it's not taking it a bridge too far, expecting uh, you know folks to completely change the way they interact with their client base. Yes. Um, but a lot of times, um, you know, when they see the opportunity and they see the goodness. And you've got to make it usable. So, you know, a lot of the work that we do is just about how do you put the right user interface? How do you put the right usability approaches in place? Because it can't be just going off and using some, you know, you got to have some guardrails and you got to have um, trial and error kind of experimentation and learning with the, with the stuff. You can't just sort of throw them in the deep end of the pool and say swim. Of course, and integration as well in terms of, uh, I really like the way you put it, that it's evolution rather than revolution. I think it's, uh, you know, having the the opportunity to integrate it within uh, existing processes, existing ways of, of working, uh, and also that educational piece at every level from leadership and, and from within the team. So people know that. One thing I learned early on from technology assessment, and I used to spend some time uh, early on in my career in a technology assessment group, um, is that technologies can't be embraced faster than people can tolerate. So people are the mitigating factor of technology evolution. Um, You know, we we can invent stuff, we can bring it to market, but... um, you know, you look at even electric cars and, you know, a number of other things and you say, well, why don't we have a lot of these technologies in place everywhere? And it's, you know, it's simply, it's the mitigating factor of people's ability to change it can mm-hmm. never be underestimated or overestimated really. That's a really important point. And, and also not just using technology and uh, adopting it for the sake of it it's actually having a, a business case behind it and uh, and being clear on what value it's adding and uh, you know how it's going to help you either better communicate or better serve your your customers or work 
more effectively, more uh, productively. Um, there's also the the other end of the spectrum where um, people will just want to try ev every new thing. And as you say, there has to be a certain level of trial and error and testing, and before you integrate anything into into the organisation, you know, for the longer term. Um, but it, it, there can be um, a bit of a, tr a trend for just using every new new bit of tech, whether that's for marketing purposes or project management. Um, so, so making sure that it's more than just a fad, I think. Yeah, well, Rachel, you really hit on a great point there, which is the new opportunity and ability through technology that we have um, for rapid experimentation. You know, what people know is uh, MVP, minimum viable product. I always love that name, MVP. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> MVP, what does that got to do with anything? <laughs> you know, minimum viable product, but this idea of testing and learning. So exactly right that um, even the very way that we change processes now and and offerings is no longer sort of big bang, but is really a, a function of using um, the technology capabilities itself to to introduce in, in parts of the market, you know, in segments, and then testing and learning and testing again um, in order to bring the right products and, and beneficial products to market. Yeah, it's definitely a, a more scientific approach. Um, and I, I think it's interesting to see that evolution as organisations are, are using scientific disruption within the, their business. They're becoming ever more scientific as a company and applying science and, and the right technology to tackle particular challenges, whether those are business challenges or, or wider global challenges, um, which leads very nicely into um, sustainability, um, which, of course, is the other enormous challenge that we all face. And we're looking at technology's ability to, to support in, in being a more sustainable business, to be able to offer sustainable products to, to clients. Um, but also, again, there's that whole process of embedding that within the organisation and uh, making it part of the, the fabric of the, the company. Um, and indeed, cost is a big barrier, as you mentioned, that the human response and, uh, and approach can often be, be a barrier. So do you feel that um, there are particular solutions that, that you're seeing that can help companies become more socially and sustainably responsible? Well, certainly there are, Rachel, and it's, it's so important today as we see it becoming an issue on so many different levels and so many different places and parts of the organization. What we've been working hard to sort of get our arms around is, and, and we have a good amount of research and, and data and insight already about how you do that, but part of the challenge is finding the right ROIs and the biggest levels of impact, right? So there are simple changes. You sort of, you know, consultants always kind of like a two by two, but we really do have to break it out into the, what requires a major investment and what's going to have a large impact at the upper right-hand corner. And what can we do kind of today that's really simple? And, you know, if we just put in recycling bins and the interesting thing when we look at that two by two is that no reason not to put in recycling bins in the offices right it's low cost and it has you know it's not the biggest impact maybe but it's an impact and it's a so part of it is the argument well does it matter you know if it's not a big impact should we even bother and i think there's what we're seeing is the important thing of building the culture a sustainable mindset so we talk a yeah. lot about 
why it's so important to have a sustainable mindset. Well, you're not going to do the big stuff unless you embrace the mindset. And oftentimes the mindset comes from just changing the behaviors of the little stuff. So we see the need to create broad and uh, perspectives and programs around the whole thing. The nice thing, too, is we find the costs are obviously coming down, and you can use technology to help bring down some of those costs. One of the great examples I like is National Coffee Chain that was able to give away its food at the end of the day because it was able to simply empower that process with technology to find out, well, where are the you know soup kitchens, where are the places that can use the food, and to integrate and simplify that supply chain to make sure that you could get it out the door. You know, they didn't want, yeah, they, they, they didn't want to waste the food, but they were wasting it before because there was a real cost and really an insurmountable cost in a way of, you know, having the local coffee shops trying to figure out where to give the food to. Well, it needs to be facilitated. And so we're seeing great new ways. And that's just one example of, the lot of ways that we're seeing technology um, as a force for good for sustainability. So even if that just takes out the need of creating X amount of food product, if we all just didn't waste food, right, we'd, we'd have enough and we'd be able to reduce our, our environmental impact. So that's really, you know, there are new ways to, re to rethink the ROI. And like I say, the, the ROI of impact you have to have the mindset first. Yeah. I mean, if it's something that it sounds relatively simple, that but you know, and and quite small steps, but actually it really builds up. And uh, something like simplifying a supply chain um, and being able to just solve that problem that's been going on for for such a long time through technology, I think is a fantastic example. And, and there must be many of those that we could probably draw upon. Many, many. Across different sectors. But it's it's common sense, isn't it? It's sort of using the technology to, to solve a problem, but to to fill that gap where there wasn't the the opportunity to uh, previously, either through through human means or or otherwise. Yeah, and the other great opportunity and that we're seeing across organizations and the complexity of it is there's so many different ways to create sustainable value from lowering the, the carbon footprint of even your information technology, your, your IT technologies. Absolutely, so, yes. Uh, IT going, you know, the greening of IT is something that we've researched and published on for a long time and are doing more now. So it's in product design, you know, the circular economy. We talk a lot about and do a lot of research at Accenture yes. um, on and how do we create circular things. The other interesting challenge that we're seeing is sustainable supply chains and value chains, right? That it, if you want the biggest impact, sometimes you have to go further up or down the value stream. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, you know, the solutions are tied into bigger ecosystem or value chain solutions. So, you know, I might have a way of producing a component that is greener, but unless the buyer of that component, the OEM, is willing to sacrifice that, communicate to the end customer why they chose this component versus another. That So the nature and what we're starting to see is that, you know, telecoms and, and technology is helping us to actually 
think about and see and imagine solutions that can only occur when the value chain and the supply chain get together to make it happen. Because you can imagine the transaction costs of saying, well, all right, I could do this in a greener way, but how do I know if my upstream or downstream partners are going to value that or even tolerate that? Yes. Um, And that fear, and I think, uh, you know, we've talked about it in the past, that that fear of like, well, I'd like to, but if it's, you know, if it doesn't perform as well, my customer's going to go elsewhere. Yes. Even coffee cups. You look at how often have we reinvented coffee cups? <laughs> I'm trying to think of simple examples, right? But, you know, but it's, it's like, well, a coffee cups kind of has to perform, keep coffee warm. And so we've gone from styrofoam to, you know, well, the cup gets hot. Well, we put little paper things uh, around it, you know, corrugated cardboard, but that's not great. So then we do a two layer cup. Um, but we're forever trying to fit like, you know, performance and consumers we find are unfortunately not as behaviorally responsive as they are emotionally responsive, shall we say. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, something we call in marketing revealed preference, (laughs) which is that I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm never going to drink out of a styrofoam cup. But then they go to a store and all they have is styrofoam cups and they take the styrofoam cup or (laughs) they say, my ouch, I burned my hand, you know, get me the styrofoam. So, we have to be able to communicate and uh, the value proposition and the importance of it across the value chain, not yes. just our own company. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise you can have those behavioral factors. You're going to have the, the cost implications or the potential perceived cost implications uh, when actually it would be better exactly. value to do it in a more sustainable way. So it's communicating that, as you say, and educating throughout the supply chain and, and also ed- educating customers in why it makes sense, both, you know, financially and from a product perspective. Um, so, you know, there's so many different elements to, to consider there. Um, and I think it's going to become more and more important for competitiveness as well across different organizations being front runners in sustainability or actually promoting those sustainable supply chains that we've discussed or being able to to demonstrate um, sustainable and socially responsible behaviors. Um, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on how you feel that will impact um, competitiveness across organizations and also um, it ties in very well with that scientific mindset we were talking about and how that that will um, affect competitiveness you know who, who are going to be the front runners who are going to be the ones who are embracing the scientific mindset and the technology in order to enable all of these different initiatives well one of the ways we look at that in, in competitiveness is sort of twofold one is you know, as consumers become more demanding of sustainable solutions, are you going to be at the forefront of that and available to do that? Um, yeah. And then one can think even across industries is becoming sort of, we, we believe and we're starting to see some amount of scaling of those winners, because if everybody wants the, say, the plastic replacement of even cups or whatever, once that becomes a, a social imperative, well, there may only be one company that can do that, and that yeah. should be yours. <laughs> um, so there's the whole idea of, of getting ahead of that curve and being prepared. And some of the old research we did is this idea of big bang disruption. 
And what happens in a world of perfect information or near perfect information is consumers start to move as a herd, as, as a group, much more quickly and in larger scale than in the past. So, you know, customers might have liked this, but now that you've got that, they all move at once because everybody wants better, cheaper, and faster. And with technology, you can do all three at the same time. So that's the big insight um, that we we had in our book, Big Bang Disruption. Um, But that we're looking for, and remember, I'm excited about when Big Bang Disruption starts to meet sustainability, which says, look, it will simply become so socially unacceptable to do certain behaviors or buy certain things that we're going to see huge shifts happening very quickly. And that's what companies have to be both on top of so they can capture the opportunity, but aware of in the sense that, you know, if you were the styrofoam cup maker for, you know, a large national coffee (laughs) company, um, almost overnight, right? The order's canceled. It's like, we're, we're going away from styrofoam, you know? And if that's your business, sorry. Um, so definitely a lot of opportunity for companies, but, but they need to be seeing that future. And that takes us all the way back to the, um, you know, learning from the future and predicting the future. The past is not going to tell us anything about sustainable attribute demand. Yeah. There are certain things that, you know, inference engines can tell us about, you know, we can learn about customers, but we're not going to learn about those kind of things. We have to be forward thinking. Absolutely. And that brings us really nicely back full circle almost um, to talking about the need to pivot, because as you mentioned, if they're making the styrofoam cups and there's no longer demand for them and all the orders are cancelled overnight, well, they need to pivot. But you know, at that point, it's too late. So, you know, how companies can can predict when they need to pivot. And in one of the books that you've co-written, Pivot to the Future, you talk about the strategic approach to business value creation, which you refer to as the wise pivot. Uh, I'm really interested to hear more about this and why you believe it's the only solution to continuous and potentially devastating change of that nature um within organizations and indeed looking from a sustainability perspective yeah the the key insight to pivot to the future um there are a couple of them and the first one starts with the insight that every business is actually for most companies three businesses Um, and i don't mean portfolio but what i mean is in the business say you're in soft drinks there's yesterday's products today's products and tomorrow's products the old, the now, and the new. And traditionally, by every textbook and business school training, the the idea has been you get out of the old when it matures and you can no longer make an abnormal return. You exploit the now, you milk the cash cow, Mm -hmm. and then you get to the future as fast as you can. What our research in the book has found is that that approach doesn't work anymore if it ever did. Um, Particularly with technology today, the old can be revived and last longer. And the old is necessary because the old actually fuels the now and the new. Um, So a great example there is uh, one that we use in the book is beer, AB InBev, 
Uh, Budweiser could be considered a mass market beer that was losing profitability. It was, you know, it was an old product. And by traditional Peter Drucker thinking, when the margins go away, when it's commoditized, you get rid of those capabilities, those assets, and you let somebody else do something better with them. What APMBEV did actually is they reinvested in new technologies that dramatically lowered the cost. They used zero-based budgeting and brought the costs of mass market beer down tremendously so they could compete with the new microbrews and, in fact, could create a, a lower cost to serve and generated so much new money out of that that they had the ability to buy 26 microbrews that then got folded into their portfolio. And part of it was threat was the technology. So old businesses, and we have lots of examples, that's just one, of old businesses that have been prematurely thrown away because companies were using bad logic. The now is the idea that, you know, we overturn the idea of cash cows, milk the cash cow. Well, in short, there is no such thing as a cash cow anymore because the technology changes so quickly that you need constant reinvention. You can't rest on your laurels and hope to, you know, cut all your investment spending, your innovation spending and say, well, I'm going to save that and I'm going to put that to the new. And I'll do that. An example we use there is Google, which makes enormous investments still in the search engine because it recognizes that there are competitors out there, Microsoft's Bing, for example, is still a very viable and strong option for those. And so the competitiveness and the innovation in that business has never gone away. So there is no milking the cash cow. Um, You have to use technology and be thinking about how technology is going to preserve that business uh, in new tradition ways. And then there's the new, and in our take on the new and the pivoting to the new is counterintuitive as well, and that you don't just automatically go to the new, you need to to pivot to the new with the intent of scale profitability. Mm -hmm. An example I love to use there is Tesla versus Prius. So you think about the Toyota Prius and how long did it take before it was created, before it was profitable, before it was as profitable as a gas car. Mm -hmm. And that was four years, two years, and four years or something like that. Basically, in seven years, it was as profitable. as It went from being nothing, you know, the dream of somebody's mind, to being an actual product that was as profitable as what they call an ICE, an internal combustion engine car. But you look at companies like Tesla um, and others in the electric car market, right? Um, but Tesla's been at it for 17 years, 2003, 18 years just beginning to get to the edges. Now, sometimes things take longer. It's not a knock on Tesla, but it's the idea of the necessity of profitability and scale can often drive companies to to better decision-making and profitable decision-making if they want it and need it, as opposed to simply getting to the future and not really knowing what to do there because the future isn't profitable. and we have lots more examples in the book in that. Uh, so that's what we talk about. It's a, it's a three-unit pivot. It's pivoting on the past, pivoting on the today, and pivoting um, through technology to a different kind of future. Great. I think that's the ideal um, point to leave our listeners with in how to pivot successfully. 
the wise pivot. Um, and it's all about thinking about things differently. It's adopting this different mindset and not just going along with the past um, because that's the way it's always been done um, or, you know, those obstacles have always been there. Finding different viewpoints and then different ways to innovate and then to pivot, which I think is is so useful and uh, and really fascinating. And I've read the book, so I recommend it to uh, <laughs> to anyone who's listening. <laughs> Paul, are there any final points that you'd like to leave us with? We've covered a lot of ground, I'm aware. Um, really interested to hear from you today and your vast experience and all the exciting projects and research that you're involved in at, at the moment. Are there any key takeaways that you would like to emphasize before we finish? Now, we've had a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. So thank you, Rachel. I think we've covered a lot of points. Um, I can only encourage people to continue to read and look and see. I've been assessing the future of technology almost literally for 35 years now when I was technology assessment group at Accenture and all through you know the think tanks and the research and writing I've done. And I can tell you, I'm as excited today as I was 30 years ago about what technology is promising. Um, and the new things to come out. So you would think, I would think yeah, after 30 years, I'd seen it all, um, <laughs> maybe kind of be over it. But um, the future is as bright today um, for a better technology-enabled world as it was um, in the last 30 years. And that's really exciting to me. That is really exciting. And your enthusiasm shines through. So it's really good to see and uh, hope we can spread some of that enthusiasm and positive thinking about the, the future of a technology enabled world to, to everyone who's listening. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a real delight talking with you today and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll be in touch again soon, hopefully to talk some more about some other topics and um, potentially create some content together. Hope so. Thank you, Rachel. It was great. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate it.